The government doesn't execute on the most basic and fundamental things, but they're involved in all sorts of things they probably shouldn't be doing that violate our civil liberties. The constant disappointment, I think, has desensitized the right. The left um, has, has gotten used to the empty threats, and just across the board, I think everybody's kind of over it. Until the patriots of this country start pushing back and holding the representatives accountable, and we take back this country with a large margin in November, we are going to see the same thing over and over and over, and we're going to wonder why the Gen Z or the younger generations can't buy a house for the first time. It's going to continue to get worse until people start reclaiming their power, because the elites are in charge, and that's the bottom line. All right, welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. It's Thursday. We're cruising into the weekend. Big update tomorrow. Don Jr. will be on the show. I'm asking him everything. Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, the court cases, everything you want to know, Don Jr., I'm going to ask him. Uh, in case there's an government shutdown, we'll talk about that today. Plus, DeSantis looks like he's bowing out of New Hampshire. I'm going to tell you the real reason why he's in South Carolina and not New Hampshire. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. Tomorrow, by the I mean, excuse me, Monday, I'll be going live after the show. We've got a great show with you today. Our panel, Ashley Hayek, who is the uh, executive director of America First uh, Policy Institute and a former 2020 Trump campaign uh, official, Ben Weingarten, the CEO and founder of Change Up Media and a contributor at The Federalist, and Amber Duke. She is the Washington editor of The Spectator and the host of Unfit to Print. Let's get into it. Well, hello, folks. Um, what a great way to kind of get ready for the weekend. I, I, I love Thursdays. There's something about them. Uh, you know, you have Taco Tuesday, Wednesday's Hump Day. Friday's Friday. I, I just, there's something about Friday, Thursdays to get me excited for the weekend. Um, anyway, I want to do something before we really kind of dive into the topics. And I want to go around the horn uh, and just sort of one word responses to each of these, and then we'll dig in a little bit further. But as I was thinking about this show, I was like, you know, let's, let's mix it up a little. So I'm going to start with you, Ashley. I'm going to ask a question on each of these things. Give me your literally 10 second or less answer, and then we'll go back in and we'll, we'll, go through each of them. So first question, we're, we're now 24 hours out from potentially another government shutdown. Do we get a short-term CR or does the government shut down? Ashley. Um, I think right now we're going to look at probably a short-term CR because we have no influence whatsoever on the conservative side and it's incredibly disappointing. Amber. I agree. I think we'll get a CR. All right, Ben. I expect the CR and I really hope I'm wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, uh, next question, politically speaking. Uh, Nikki Haley is all in in New Hampshire. Does she make it to her home state of South Carolina a month later in February, Ashley? She makes it, but with her tail between her legs. Amber? She stays in to save some pride, but has no chance. Ben? Stays in the race, but the race is over. All right, now let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys in a little bit what everybody's missing about why Ron DeSantis went to South Carolina. Um, and, and I, it's anyway, I'm so excited because I feel like a kid in a candy store. Uh, but let me just ask, does Ron DeSantis, who is basically, it looks like skipping New Hampshire and going to South Carolina, uh, actually, does he make it to South Carolina? I think he is probably going to run out of money pretty soon. Amber. I would also err on the side of him dropping out. I thought he was going to drop out after Iowa. Okay. Uh, Ben. I think that he should drop out, get behind Trump, go against Joe Biden, but I'll be the contrarian and say he sticks through South Carolina. Interesting. Okay, last one of these, and then we'll start to dig back in. Hunter Biden's trying to uh, avoid 
a contempt charge. They're trying to negotiate, it appears in earnest anyway, an opportunity to now do the whole testimony thing. Does a deal get worked out before a household, before the house holds them in contempt? Ashley. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Ooh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly am really conflicted because he's such an elitist and none of the rules ever apply to him. So unless the deal is totally in his favor, which if House Republicans want any sort of dignity here, they, they will keep to their, to their, stick to their guns on this. Um, so I, I'm a little conflicted on this. Okay. I think he could end up getting held in contempt, but because he wants it his way. I think House Republicans will probably try to make a deal because they're feckless. Okay. Ben. So he wants to do the maximally aggressive thing. I think Republicans are scared about crossing the contempt line and actually having to pursue it. So I think he ultimately does, uh, he ultimately does testify, but he pleads the fifth. Okay. Hey, are you a professional that's running a small business or maybe you know that person? Well, I've got an exciting, exciting new offer for you. It's called Ramp and it will maximize productivity and cut wasteful spending from your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to save you money and put money back in the pocket of your company. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into spending money. It can add restrictions, limits, all those things that you want. It's a physical credit card that you get to give employees that you don't have to worry about because you know where they can spend, how much they can spend. It's fantastic. Ramp saves you money. And here's the thing. Businesses that start with Ramp save on average 5% the first month. Who doesn't like that? It's easy to use. It's easy to get started. They issue virtual and physical credit cards, and you can start making payments in less than 15 minutes. Whether you have five employees or 5,000, Ramp is going to save you time and money. But here is the kicker. Whether you're that person or you know the person, if you go to ramp.com slash Spicer, you get 250 bucks just for signing up. 250 bucks in your pocket. That's why you are gonna go to ramp.com slash Spicer right now and sign up. By the way, cards are issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members, FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get back to the government shutting down. I, it's amazing to me, it must be the politics of Iowa and now New Hampshire, but I can't believe we're sitting here on a Thursday, 24 hours out, and the morning news is, well, the Senate's probably gonna vote today on the short-term CR, and then I think the House will get to it tomorrow. I mean, this is like, I, I, I don't know, maybe have we gotten just too used to the potential of government shutdowns and these short-term CRs? Is it now that the Democrats say that they'll kind of bail out Johnson? Like, I don't understand actually why this time it doesn't feel like is real. And and frankly, I, I don't see the pieces of it coming together unless, uh, I, I mean, just Johnson needs Democrats this time to get him over the hurdle. That's what undid McCarthy. What, what's going on that this time doesn't feel the same as every other time? Because there's not a political opportunity for either side. So they're not going to blow this up because they're both losing. The Democrats are losing on the border. Republicans are losing on fiscal responsibility and the economy. And so no one has an incentive to actually elevate the issue or the fact that we're in this gridlock. Everyone wants to point to something else at this point in time, and no one wants to take any responsibility or accountability. In fact, I think they even talked about how they weren't able to come in because of the weather and the snow. Um, and it's just yeah. actually by so the way, like, cowardly. By the way, 
I, I put this on my Instagram just to be clear. Like, I, I'm a New Englander. Like, this was an inch of snow. And then, like, my kid's school gets shut down. Everyone's freaking out. I, and we're getting, by the way, tomorrow, supposed to be, like, another inch and a half. And everyone's, like, already running to Costco and gassing up the cars. But I get it. I'm with you. I was amazed. They were like, well, we can't come in because there's snow on the ground. And I'm like, you know. Anyway, I, uh, Amber, why is it, is, am I wrong or is this just, I, I cannot believe we're 24 hours out from another shutdown and everyone's kind of like, ah, we'll get it done. Well, we've become totally desensitized to it over the past year and a half, if not two years. And I think that people are, are not feeling the crunch this time outside of Congress, that is, because there's been so many empty threats about a shutdown. There's been so much fear mongering from the left about a shutdown and how Republicans are trying to close the government that I just don't think anybody believes it anymore. And on the conservative side, I think conservatives constantly find themselves disappointed that maybe we'll actually use the shutdown as leverage to get some kind of conservative proposal like on the border. And then you see Senator James Lankford trot out of his meeting with Chuck Schumer and you find out that they actually want to cap the number of illegal immigrants who are allowed to come into the U.S. every day at 5,000, which is above Trump levels. It's at crisis levels that they want to increase all kinds of legal immigration. So the constant disappointment, I think, has desensitized the right. The left um, has has gotten used to the empty threats. And just across the board, I think everybody's kind of over it. You know, Ben, part of this to me kind of feels like it's, it's going to happen on a Friday. And so if you if you miss the deadline and the government shut down, it would be for the first two days, it'd be a weekend when it really doesn't matter as much. It's not like you're, you know, the, the scare tactics don't work on a Saturday and Sunday and it almost buys them 48 hours of additional time uh, to, to get a deal. Is that, but uh, on the flip side, that, that works, but then the members may not be here over the weekend or you may not, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I just, I, I literally having watched this so many times, I'm like, where is the, the concern about the government shutting down on either side? Yeah, well, and maybe in part it's because, and, and I probably wouldn't put this as the highest probability, but people have become desensitized maybe to this because we've become desensitized to a lot of things that would have been perceived as crazy and radical and extreme, you know, even as, as recently as a few months ago. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a former president facing four trials and 90 plus charges <laughs> and- right. Uh, an invasion of our southern border where we're talking about millions of people coming in during a presidency where we used to talk about, well, if it was a few hundred thousand, that was uh, ca catastrophic and an invasion on our southern border. So I think part of it might be that not only have we become desensitized to everything is a crisis and we're in perpetual crisis mode, uh, also, of course, that we have budget by CR essentially in perpetuity. We haven't had a normal budgetary process in years, but also beyond that, planes don't fall out of the sky and society doesn't collapse when government is shut down. Look, we basically, speaking of the border, I mean, we basically have a shutdown at the border. That's the most basic fundamental thing right. that a government's supposed to do, right? Protect our sovereignty, defend our territory. Beyond that, I think people would be shocked to know you go down to Washington and you look at federal office buildings and they're almost completely unoccupied. No one's even working in the building. That's true. So, you know what? That is, that is the other, <laughs> that's the other great point. These guys, they're like, ah, you know what? I'm still going to get paid. I'm not going to the office. So who cares? I mean, look, if we actually talked about what are the necessities that a government ought to do, the government doesn't execute on the most basic and fundamental things, but they're involved in all sorts of things they probably shouldn't be doing that violate our civil liberties or 
that ultimately undermine the most basic and fundamental values and principles on which the government is based. So at the end of the day, I mean, I think it's a mixed blessing to some extent for the public to see that actually when there is government shutdown, life does go on. I mean, they forced us to shut our lives down for months on end arbitrarily. Maybe it'd be a good thing in Washington. But however, obviously, politically, all of the incentives are on the other side of this. On both sides, no one wants to be in an election year and say, it's our fault that the government was shut down and uh, there's chaos on the Republican side. As you know, the Democrat media will frame it. The question is, though, what wouldn't, what would they shut down government over? Like when we're talking, if we're talking about the border, for example, right. set aside the funding for Ukraine in perpetuity with no strings attached to it and there's no accountability and they can't tell us what the end game is when it comes to Ukraine, set that aside for a moment. If we don't have a border, if millions of people are coming over it, if essentially you don't have sovereignty as a country, I mean, why wouldn't you shut right. down the government over that? Like what, and, and what, what would the what would the administration have to do to oblige you to shut it down? And shouldn't it be put to the American people? Why are we on the defensive about this? This should be right. in Joe Biden's lap. He should be explaining to the American people why he can't do the most basic thing, which is to protect and defend our sovereignty yep, and the life and limb of our people. The problem is that the American people aren't paying attention to this. So you have people in Washington who aren't really being held accountable for any of this. Um, they are, they, there is such a separation between the people who work in the swamp and the, the actual American people who are trying to make ends meet. They're not thinking about the government shutdown. I mean, one of the things that Amber mentioned was the meeting with Lankford and Schumer. That's like your house is on fire and you're going to go meet with an arsonist. Why would you do something like that? Like, you know, you're not going to get a deal out of that. It's ridiculous. And they are not elevating the issue in a way that's actually reaching the American people. Instead, they're keeping in their bubble. And until the patriots of this country start pushing back and holding the representatives accountable and we take back this country with a large margin in November, we are going to see the same thing over and over and over. And we're going to wonder why we can't move out of our house or, you know, the Gen Z or the younger generations can't buy a house for the first time or why it costs, you know, $200 to fill up my car, why I'm not allowed to buy an SUV. Like it's going to continue to get worse until people start reclaiming their power because the elites are in charge and that's the bottom line and there's yeah. no accountability. All right, folks, I want to tell you about my friend, Leo Grillo. If you've been watching the show for a while, you know about Leo and all the great work that he does at Delta Rescue. You can go to deltarescue.org, take a look at the videos, an amazing, amazing no kill sanctuary. Leo Grill has made a life out of saving, protecting, nurturing abandoned animals, dogs, cats, you name it. Delta Rescue is a, a mission of his. It's a passion of his. Um, if you're an animal lover like me, if you've rescued dogs, if you've rescued cats, um, then you're going to want to check out the amazing work of Delta Rescue. You go to deltarescue.org, there's videos, there's testimonials. You can see what I'm talking about. It is the world's largest no-kill sanctuary. It's not a shelter. It's a sanctuary. This is where animals can live in perpetuity. They can get the nutrition they need, the care they need, the support they need. And it's all because Leo Grillo made it his lifelong mission. And it's only supported through donations like me and you, five, ten, a hundred dollars. But there's also a way that we can make this mission that Leo has created a lifelong one, an enduring one. And that's if we go to deltarescue.org and check out the estate kit that they put there. Download it, see if it works for you, if it could be part of your financial future planning. Go to deltarescue.org, hit that estate 
guide. Also, think about a contribution. Help Leo Grillo and the great work that Delta Rescue does to take care of these abandoned animals. You know, Amber, I, I mean, I want to kind of, I don't know, there's like eight questions here. But number one, to, to Ben's point, Chip Roy was on the show a couple of weeks ago and he was like, this is, you know, t- he made the same point that, that Ben did. Like, th- if you don't fight for this, what are you willing to fight for? Number one. Number two, uh, to your, to what I think everybody's saying is, is that when you see Speaker Johnson or Lankford, they look like they're going to meetings to, to, to set up like a, you know, a, a, an event as opposed to negotiating over our sovereignty and our border security and our protection um, and our national defense. I, I just, I don't get that sense that that the folks on the right are doing anything different. It's yes, we rearranged the deck chairs. Kevin McCarthy's gone. Mike Johnson's here. But I don't find that sense of urgency either. And I, I, I kind of go, what are, I mean, we're not as conservatives fighting over spending anymore. The debt's at $34 trillion. We're not fighting over all of these issues, national defense. I mean, it, I, I'm going, this is the one that maybe you guys stick up for. And, and we had Brent Buchanan on the other day that had Brad, this brand new polling that was exclusive to us that talked about how it's a bipartisan issue. People, the American people are with us on the border security issue. And I don't feel like it's, it's breaking through. There's no events on Capitol Hill. There's no delegation down at the border. I, what, what is it that's missing here? Why isn't there a sense of urgency? It's beyond frustrating, and you're exactly right. The American people are paying attention not to the spending fight, but to immigration. It's a top two issue for them if you ask them what their issues are heading into the 2024 election. And I'm fine with Republicans going down to the border in Texas and doing their little press conference, and you actually see illegal immigrants in the background crossing the border right behind them. Um, But Chip Roy had a good point where he said, I'm not going because we do these press conferences over and over again. And then we don't actually change anything. So if you're going to do the press conference, that's fine. You should be messaging the issue. Absolutely. But it has to be paired with action. This is the action. Shut down the government if you don't get a reasonable border deal. That's why you do this. That's why you message the issue so that when the American people get, uh, when they find out about the government shutdown, they blame Democrats. (laughs) They don't blame Republicans because they want the the border solved. I I think we need to re- recalibrate this this thing. And I get it. We're all saying the same thing, but I, I love talking about the messaging piece of this. And, and yes. instead of saying, we're going to shut down the government, why aren't we going to say, we're going to insist on a secure border. We're going to insist that fentanyl stops coming through uh, into our cities. We're going to insist that terrorists can't come into the country through our southern right. border. And, and instead of being like, we're going to shut down the border, which is a bad thing, right? It's a negative. Why not be for something? We're for a secure America. We're for terrorists not coming right. into the country. Or frame it as the Democrats. The Democrats want to shut down the government because they, yes. they refuse to secure the border. Like, it's really that simple of a flip. And it's just Amber mind-blowing that speaker. over and over again, they fail to, to do the most basic of PR. I mean, if someone who's worked in the, the industry for five minutes can tell you this. Right. I, I mean, I, I just... To me, I every time I see these things and I'm like, this isn't that hard to message. We're on the right side of this issue. Um, l- let me just go back real quickly. Ashley, you guys at America First Policy Institutes have all these experts, right? Chad Wolf, former acting Homeland Security uh, and, and others. W- what are you guys doing? Um, and, and do you think it's resonating? I mean, I don't mean, I'm not trying to get you guys to list off what you're doing, but like, do you feel like there's an appetite right now to hear from the experts and to talk about the solutions and what's happening or is it falling on deaf ears? 
No, I can tell you, Chad Wolf and several of our, our key members have been going to the Capitol, meeting with legislators, briefing them on uh, the issues, the tens of thousands of unaccompanied alien children that are in our country. Um, we've done events down in Arizona, um, just with the American people actually to elevate this issue so that people will take action on our C4 side. Um, but Chad and and uh, Rob Law, who's an expert on asylum and immigration law, um, they have been actively working to to provide solutions and options. Um, and some of it is taken and some of it is not. And I think we'll see over the course of the next week, obviously, what the ultimate outcome is going to be. But right now, it is not looking very promising, unfortunately. Um, I, I want to shift, Ben, to, to politics for a second, if I can. Right now, we've got two strategies. You know, let's take Nikki Haley first, and then we're going to talk about Ron DeSantis. But like, Haley's gone all in in New Hampshire, right? Uh, the RCP average, the Real Clear Politics average right now, has the race at the following. Trump at 46.3, Haley 33.5, Christie, who, by the way, dropped out at 12, uh, DeSantis at six. Now, if you look at the last two polls, the St. Anselm poll and the Boston Globe poll, uh, they came out after Christie dropped out and after Ramaswamy dropped out. They've got Trump at 52 to 38 for Haley, six for DeSantis. Uh, Trump at 50, 36 for Haley in the Boston Globe poll and six for DeSantis, which is, I mean, to me, they were both conducted over the same amount of time. They both came out with almost the same result, right? DeSantis at 6% in both polls. Nikki at 38 in one, 36 in the other. That's a wash. That's the margin of error. Trump at 52 and 50 in the other. That's a wash in the margin of error. So basically, that's where the race stands right now in New Hampshire. Do you think that Nikki Haley, this is her last stand? I mean, we asked that at the beginning. Like, what, where does, what, is the, what does this look like next Tuesday night? Well, I think it's hard for me to conceive of her not going down to South Carolina, although if she gets creamed in South Carolina, that's going to be embarrassing in her home Don't state. Don't you think... Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, just so we're clear, and let's let's just give everyone the context there. In in South Carolina, the real clear politics average has Trump at 52, Haley at 21.8, and DeSantis at 11 there, right? She's she's actually getting crushed more in a state that she was elected twice as governor than she is in New Hampshire, where by the way, independents and Democrats can vote, and I think that's what's probably helping her in New Hampshire, right? Yeah, that, that's that's her entire strategy in New Hampshire. I think you've seen uh, Governor Sununu has sort of been lowering expectations to try and make it seem like a firm second place finish is some kind of massive victory here. Uh, look, I've always been somewhat baffled by what the end game is for all of the non-Trump candidates at this point. I mean, when you've seen the polling be so consistent and robust and it's cemented in all of these states, what is the point? What's the angle of hanging around? And obviously for some candidates, it's prepare yourself for 2028 and beyond. This is about getting up your name recognition, building infrastructure, connections, and ultimately leveraging these ties down the road in future races. For Haley, it seems like the entire plan has been, you know, I'm going to be the most electable candidate in a one-on-one -on -one race against a Democrat. And I've got essentially whatever the remnants of kind of the Wall Street GOP, Chamber of Commerce, Republicans looks like. But as represented in the polling, that's a fraction of a fraction of actual rank and file Republican voters. So she's a candidate really without a constituency in a Republican primary. So is the idea to stay in this, burn through lots of money, 
rack up some percentage of delegates as everyone else drops out so that then somehow something happens at the convention or post-convention. I mean, if you want to play the you know conspiracy theory, let's look at the rules. If you look at the Democrat bylaws, they have a way where the DNC can essentially pick whoever the nominee is going to be if there's a vacancy post-convention. I believe the RNC rules are similar, but other than that kind of scenario, what is the black swan event that you're expecting to happen to Donald Trump? Right. If Donald Trump was convicted tomorrow, if Donald Trump was put in prison tomorrow, do you think it would fundamentally change things? And by the way, that's not going to happen based upon how Jack Smith has gotten thwarted time and time again uh, with his ridiculous you know, Soviet show trial style effort against President Trump. So at the end of the day, I'm just not sure what the plan is Exactly. Do I think she stays in after getting likely crushed in New Hampshire by 10 to 15 points? I do. Do I think it's gonna be worse in South Carolina? I do. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure what the plan is exactly. I mean, maybe you have some insight, Sean, into. No, I, 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 I'm asking because I, I honestly, Ashley, do you have any insight into this? Okay, I'll throw out a crazy idea. It's a question. <laughs> I have no insight into this whatsoever. At some point, would she consider, because, okay, go back and look at Iowa. Uh, Johnson County, she basically targeted Democrats and they they said that they had the largest number of people who switched from Democrat to Republican to be a part of the caucus, right? So that's who she's targeting. Same thing in New Hampshire, targeting independents and you know Democrats to vote for her. She obviously is not a true Republican nominee. Would it be possible for her to leave the Republican Party and join Joe Manchin on a no party ballot? That would be my question. All right, guys, most of us know what it's like to be without power, sometimes for an hour, maybe a day, a couple days after a natural disaster, a hurricane, a windstorm, you know, whatever. But now national security experts are warning that our power grid is more vulnerable than ever. And they've identified nine key substations, which if attacked, they're saying we could lose power for months, months. That's why having your own solar power is more important than ever. So I recommend the Patriot Power Generator, which is a solar generator that you don't have to install in your house. It's portable. You can take it with you. You can use it inside your house. And it's powerful enough that if power goes out, we're talking your phones, your tablets, your computers, medical devices, even your refrigerator gets power. So if you go to fourpatriots.com and use code SPICER, you get 10% off your first purchase. It's four. Patriots.com includes that Patriot power generator. You'll get a uh, that guarantee for a year, free shipping if it's over 97 bucks, and a portion of every sale is donated to charities that support veterans, right? That's great. So go to fourpatriots.com, use code SPICER, fourpatriots.com. You do not want to be without power in case something happens. Look, pledge aside, future aside, I, even me has a hard time buying that that's... Uh, I mean, I, I get it. And I, I, there's, there's been a lot of media folks that said, oh, she's got to be the darling of no labels. I, I mean, Amber, I just call me naive. I just have a hard time believing you've spent your whole life as a Republican. She's not stupid, right? She knows that if you go no labels, you, you literally have a better chance of being abducted by Martians and winning the Mars lottery than you do of doing well in no labels in terms of winning. So I feel like that's even a bigger bank shot than she's doing right now in the primaries. Yeah, I don't see it. I mean, honestly, what Ben was saying about how candidates have have been challenging Trump mostly because they want to build up 2028 infrastructure and donors, I think is actually what the Haley campaign was created for. I mean, just based on consultants I was talking to when she announced her candidacy, I was asking who is her constituency? And they said, well, she doesn't have one. She's just 
building up for 2028. But then I think she had a couple of decent debate performances and maybe got a little bit out over her skis and, and genuinely thinks that she can be competitive. And now she has a selectability argument, which, by the way, doesn't make much sense, because if you lose half of the Republican base as you're picking up these independents and Democrats, it doesn't help you a whole lot. I mean, the polling out of Iowa showed that there would be more Republicans there who would not vote for DeSantis or Haley if they ended up becoming the nominee than those who would defect from Trump. That's a serious problem. Um, and so now she has to make this calculation, which is a difficult one. Does it look worse if I don't make it to my home state or if I get creamed in my home state? And I don't know if, if there's a, a clear answer there, unfortunately for her. I'm just, I'm sorry. I think getting your butt kicked in your home state that you're elected twice as governor is, is literally the, the, that's, that's it. You're done. That's a kill shot. Um, you know, I well, think that's Kamala what Tim- Harris became vice president. So maybe not. <laughs> uh, fair enough. But she dropped in. She dropped out before California. Uh, yeah, she dropped she out. Yeah, she dropped out before right Iowa. Before. So, of course, her polling, yeah, her right. polling was so but, bad. But, yeah. But the difference is it's one thing to poll bad. It's another thing to have literally be rebuked by your own voters. I think that's why Kamala dropped out. So she didn't get her butt kicked. I mean, she was polling horrendously. Ben, I'm going to give you the this is going to be. The exclusive unveiling, and you guys are witness to this, of my Ron DeSantis explanation. People were, I watched all these media types try to understand why he bolted from Iowa to South Carolina, right? South Carolina is the end of February. Like the guy owns a calendar. He realizes that you've got uh, New Hampshire next week, right? On Tuesday, then Nevada, and then South Carolina. Why is he going to South Carolina. And everyone's like, well, he's trying to show up Nikki Haley. Here's the thing. One of you guys mentioned like the rules or something in passing about something else. The rules matter. I read this before. So let's go back and just do this real quick. The real clear average in New Hampshire for Ron DeSantis, 6%. The St. Anson poll, he got 6%. The Boston Globe poll, he got 6%. The WHD Emerson poll, he got 7%. CNN UNH poll, he got 5%. Why does that matter? It matters because New Hampshire has a 10% threshold. If you don't hit 10%, you can't even qualify for delegates. South Carolina, no threshold. So he knows that not only would he get smoked in New Hampshire, but it's a complete waste of time. You wouldn't even qualify for delegates if you went there under every single poll that's come out. And I think DeSantis is trying to figure out a way to tap dance as long as he can without embarrassment. But I I just don't, I still don't see the game. You need gas in the car. You need volunteers to put up signs, to make phone calls. After being smoked in New Hampshire, how does he make the case to say, stay with me for a month to go into South Carolina, where I'm currently polling uh, an average of, of 11? And the last couple, the last poll has me at seven. I just, I don't get that strategy. Plus, practically, you're going to run out of money and are your donors going to want to throw good money after bad? Bad. So practically, I think there's a, a challenge there. I do. I like your theory. And I think looking at the rules is always wise. I mean, this calls to mind back in 2016, when you had, you know, all the different non-Trump candidates trying to figure out what can we do to get the delegate numbers up and game the system to try and ultimately win in some kind of brokered convention. But that is the way that a candidate should thinking about it. This is a game of math at the end of the day. Uh, Look, I think my advice would be, and I'm sure everyone and their mother is giving Ron DeSantis advice and he's probably heard this and he's probably thinking this. 
at the end of the day, look out over a longer horizon. It made sense for Ron DeSantis to run this time because you have to strike while the iron's hot as a governor. Look, the converse of this is Chris Christie did not run when he had maybe the best opportunity of his career to run. And I think he still kicks himself for it. And I think that in part explains why he's continued to run, even though he's not been a viable candidate. It made sense for Ron DeSantis to run. The Trump singularly as a phenomenon may be a unique phenomenon in American history. Who will pick up the mantle? Will there be a MAGA mantle ultimately down the road? Clearly, there's a constituency for it. Clearly, the positions and the way they're articulated matter and they resonate. To my mind, Ron DeSantis should be looking at four years out, eight years out, 12 years out. And there is no heir apparent to Donald Trump. There may be no exact heir apparent, but what would be the smart tactical thing and strategic thing in both the short, medium, and long term? Drop out, get fully behind Donald Trump, bury the hatchet, kiss and make up, It will help your viability down the road. It will show that you're a team player. It will unite cohorts that are at each other's throats right now. But at the end of the day, the voters who are DeSantis versus Trump voters still agree on probably 80% or more of things. Bury the hatchet now and make this about Republicans dominating Democrats in 2024. To me, that's the shrewd play. Obviously, there's ego involved. Obviously, there's the passion and the fire in the belly that you have to have to want to run for president and get into a race like this. But at the end of the day, I think the smart thing to do would be to drop out, get behind Donald Trump and end this primary process and use all the resources because Republicans are going to need them to train their fire on the Democrats. And I say the Democrats because I don't know that Joe Biden is going to be the guy ultimately. I still continue to believe that he might not be at the end of the day. Yeah, it's amazing. I think both sides don't believe the... Trump Biden race will come to fruition, but that's, that's another subject to actually, here's the thing. I, I agree. I mean, both, uh, Amber and, and Ben talk about both Haley and DeSantis 2028, right? And I think early on that, that might have made sense. Like you let Trump go through, try to assume the mantle, be the person that really, uh, that, that made it clear to MAGA America first voters that you're the heir apparent. Um, or one of them. But every time I talk to an America first activist, grassroots supporter, or even somebody that worked for Trump, they're like, I like DeSantis as governor, but he's dead to me now. Uh, Nikki Haley, blah, blah, blah. And, and I feel like I get what Ben's saying, salvage what you can, do a vivake, go up there and be like, he's the greatest and da, da, da. Is it too late for either of these guys? Well, look at what Nikki Haley said last night. She basically equ- tried to equate uh, Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And I just don't see like, Nikki Haley's her. She is exposed. She's a globalist. She's a corporatist. Um, she's an elitist. And so all of that has come out now. And I don't see there, any sort of backtracking on that. That's something that's going to be remembered for a very, very long time. She's done. I think there's a lot of people who knew that. I think that she did have an opportunity opportunity early on. And I think that's just completely gone. Uh, Vivek actually exposed a lot of this too. That That was something that I think really damaged her as well. And that's also just when you start hearing the stories about how she's going after the Democrats and the independents, she doesn't truly represent the Republican base, the MAGA base, the America first base. Um, if you look at Governor DeSantis, you know, the the problem is that he's attacked a lot of Trump policies that right. people said, you know, well, I like Ron DeSantis because he's, you know, not as, you know, um, out there or whatever as Donald Trump. But then he went and attacked his policies. 
And that just, he went after the Supreme Court justices. That was so stupid. And I think one of the things um, that Ben brought up was, you know, you have people with a lot of egos and um, power, but you also have a lot of consultants that are making a ton of money on this. And the consultant class is hurting the Republican Party. It's hurting the America First movement. And this is the complete problem with the structure that we have. And so until that is actually identified and and candidates start asking questions like, what does this actually benefit and maybe self-reflect? We're going to continue to have these problems because when they look at South Carolina, you and I and all of us here are thinking math problems. Like how, how do we get to that vote count? How do we get to that delegate number? What the consultants are thinking is what is my commission going to be? And that's the big problem here today. It's a, that's right. Amber, the thing that's interesting, there's a story in Playbook this morning that Trump is apparently still asking people, you know, at Mar-a-Lago and, and other places about, what they think of Nikki as as a VP. Here's what I find fascinating about the dynamic. I have said it very clearly. I've asked Steve Bannon, Don Jr. is going to be on the show tomorrow. I'm going to ask him about Nikki Haley. Why won't she answer? Chris, I mean, uh, DeSantis and Christie and all these people attacked her for refusing to say that she wouldn't accept a VP nod from Trump. Now, I don't think she'll get the opportunity to accept or decline it. But why, if you're Nikki Haley, do you do exactly what Ashley said? You go after Trump viciously, but then you won't rule out being his VP that you probably wouldn't be asked for anyway. I just, I'm literally saying, why not just say no? That will help you with your uh, independent democratic demographic that you're trying to get anyway in New Hampshire. I don't understand it. There's a lot about Nikki Haley's campaign that I don't understand, frankly. Um, and apparently Chris Christie was asking her behind the scenes to say that she wouldn't do it before right. he dropped out. So, I mean, who knows if she actually committed that to him? Uh, nobody seems to know, but it's just bizarre. And back on the DeSantis thing, by the way, I think Ashley is spot on. There's a, a lot of consultants that are making tons of money off of these dead in the water campaigns. And one of DeSantis's biggest problems is that he outsourced so much of his campaign to the Never Back Down Pack and the consultants who are running it. And guess what they did? The Axiom machine closed ranks. They kicked out all of the vendors who were seen as not playing ball. And DeSantis was surrounded by yes men who were making money hand over fist to keep him in the race. Um, that was a huge problem. He wasn't. Yeah, by the he way, didn't have anybody in there who was challenging whatever orthodoxy they were they were spitting at him that he could run to the right of Trump and pick up Trump's base. Obviously, that was a foolhardy idea. Now he finds himself. I saw it described this way on social media. I thought it was perfect. He's basically a vulture at this point. He's waiting for Trump to die and not literally die, but to go to jail or or have multiple convictions. And he's going to pick at the carcass. He's waiting for that black swan event, as Ben said. Yeah, but the thing that Ben hit it exactly right, that the problem is, is that you know, the black swan event ain't coming, at least before Super Tuesday. Um, but the other, by the way, the, the, to touch on what Ashley started and you piled on, the lead of Politico's playbook this morning is that Trump's team is making it very clear to down ballot candidates, House members, senator, you know, everyone else, do not use this Axiom Jeff Rowe machine that went after Trump. They're being hardcore about this in a way that I've been in politics 30 years. I've never seen anything like what they're doing. Um, but I, I, I want to switch focus for just a minute because we talked about Hunter at the beginning of the show. Um, I, I, so here's my take on this, and then I'll have you guys tell me Initially, Hunter was doing all these stunts, right? And the re reporting was that the White House was not in the loop about what Hunter was doing, these press conferences showing up on the Hill and the little stunt about going to the committee hearing. I kind of believe it. I think that they wanted to, Hunter wanted to show that he could do his own 
he always felt like he was one of those movies where he was like, dad, look, see, I can help too. I can do it myself. And, and, like and what Fredo happened, and Godfather. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing that I've started, the light bulb went off for me. Abby Lowell, right after the house said, all right, cute stunt hunter, we're sending a letter and we're going to, we're, we're going to basically now move to the contempt phase of this. If there was a vote to hold Hunter in contempt, it would pass. And then it would go to the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland would have to decide to enforce that subpoena or not. Now, a lot of people say, well, of course he's not going to do it. And da, da, da. But here's the problem. He held Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, all of those people who didn't want to get held, uh, who, who didn't want to comply with the subpoenas to a BS committee. Let's face it. That wasn't a real congressional committee. Uh, they went after him and Joe Biden was very vocal. You need to comply with these subpoenas and we need to da, 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 da. I think that Abby Lowe, Hunter Biden's attorney, realized that you will be putting the Justice Department in a very bad situation. Joe Biden's on record on this. Merrick Garland's got to do something. And you better find a way to weasel yourself back into that committee because we don't want to deal with the political consequences of the stupid place you just put us. Maybe that's uh, too pie in the sky, Ben, and it's too, but I, I think that the Biden White House back channeled to them, hey, cute stunt guys, you're going to screw us now. So again, getting back to my analogy, it was like the kid was like, see, dad, I could do a great job. And, and then all of a sudden they were like, yeah, and now you've mortgaged the house or whatever. But Ben, is that too much of a, uh, is that too far of a, a bridge too far? Or do you think that these guys actually thought it through and said, you morons, you screwed it up now? I don't think it's too pie in the sky at all. He already did damage the White House in one fundamental way, and the White House did it to itself also. But the day that he pulled the first stunt where he defied the subpoenas and then went out out of arm's reach of the sergeant at arms, so he's on the Senate side outside the Capitol delivering his speech with Eric Swalwell behind him. And by the way, who knows if Swalwell uh, is implicated in obstructing Congress essentially by being there and advising him. But remember, Corinne Jean-Pierre said essentially that the White House had foreknowledge of what he was going to do. That in turn led House Republicans, impeachment investigators, to expand the scope of their impeachment inquiry to encompass whether or not the president essentially conspired with Hunter Biden to obstruct Congress. So they already did damage the White House in right. one fundamental way. More broadly, to your point, even setting aside the bind that the DOJ gets put in in this, uh, to the extent the DOJ cares about its reputation at, at this point with vis-a-vis -vis the Bidens, uh, is the notion that Hunter Biden, of course, was the bagman for an international influence peddling scheme that was premised on Joe Biden as the sole asset. The more Hunter Biden is out there being aggressive, the more it implicates Joe Biden. What would an advisor, Abby Lowell himself is, is aggressive, it seems like by nature. So maybe that fits with Hunter Biden. But like you said, he is smart. Is it smart to put Hunter Biden out there repeatedly? Is this the guy you want as the face right. of the defense for the Biden family? I think ultimately not. And Hunter Biden may want to make himself the victim and a martyr and look at the Republicans. They're going on a witch hunt against me because they don't like my father. I don't think ultimately that wins and that plays out in their favor in the end, the Hunter Biden as victim. So I, I agree with you 
I think they realize that this is not the shrewd play. They do want to extend this process as long as possible. So now Abby Lowell comes back hat in hand and says, well, now it's a legitimate impeachment inquiry because it's actually been voted upon by the full house. And now you can go ahead with your subpoenas, do whatever you want. Let me just note also to your point about the DOJ, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden dynamic. Obviously, one part of the impeachment is the DOJ being on trial for appearance-wise, obstructing and maybe actually obstructing essentially the investigation and prosecution of several Bidens, including Hunter. Right now, you have Hunter Biden fighting the DOJ in Delaware and soon in California as well. We saw a bunch of filings lodged by the DOJ this week to dismiss these efforts by Hunter Biden to get the prosecution of him dismissed in Delaware. And it is remarkable if you go into the filings, most people, the big takeaway news item was, look, here's the DOJ talking about how they had Hunter Biden's laptop and they knew it was real back in 2019. Maybe the more interesting part of these filings, and I wrote about this several weeks back, Hunter is trying to get the DOJ to kick the case. He's saying that they are engaged in a selective and vindictive prosecution against him. Why? He says House Republicans have weaponized the Biden DOJ against him to take him down. And so the DOJ has to twist itself in knots because you know it tanked the Biden investigation and prosecution to say, actually, we are dealing with you on the merits. And actually, we are fair and square dealing with you just like any other American citizen. So it's a fascinating dynamic. Hunter Biden attacking the DOJ's legitimacy and credibility. The DOJ trying to say it's not political when it's only here because it was political, because the the sham plea deal collapsed in the first place. And as a reminder, the DOJ in the filings this week admitted that it was Hunter Biden's laptop. He did drop it off. I mean, like, and that's a whole nother story about how many people need to apologize. We're out of time, guys. Ben, Ashley, Amber, always great. What a robust conversation. As a reminder to you folks, tomorrow, Don Jr.'s here. I'm going to ask a lot of the same questions tomorrow. What about Nikki Haley? What about Vivek? What's his role? What about Elise Stefanik and other VP names? We have so much to break down with Don Jr. tomorrow about the court cases, everything that's going on, about the campaign, who should be on the retribution list. You know what I'm talking about? It's going to get good. Uh, And then next Monday night, I will be going live on YouTube ahead of the New Hampshire uh, primaries on YouTube after the show. So make sure you're subscribed now and get your calendars marked. Oh, that's going to be fun. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow with Don Jr. on The Sean Spicer Show.